Chapter Twenty Seven of the Book of Life by Upton Sinclair. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty Seven Diseases and Cures discusses some of the commoner human ailments and what is known about their cause and cure. I begin with the commonest of all troubles, known as a cold. This name implies that the cause of the trouble lies in exposure or chill. All the grandmothers of the world are agreed about this. They have a phrase, or at least they had it when I was a boy, you will catch your death. Every time I went out in the rain, every time I played with wet feet, or sat in a draft, or got under a cold shower, I would hear the formula, you will catch your death. And, on the other hand, there are the health cranks, who declare vehemently that the name cold is a misnomer and a trap for people's thoughts. Cold has nothing to do with it, they say, and point to Arctic explorers who frequently got frozen to death, but do not catch cold until they get back into the warm rooms of civilization. As for drafts, the health cranks aver that a draft is merely fresh air moving, which is supposed to settle the matter. However, when you come to think about it, you realize that a cyclone is likewise merely fresh air moving, so you have not decided the question by a phrase. While I was writing these chapters on health, I contracted a severe cold, which was a joke on me. The history of this cold is as clear in my mind as anything human can be, and it will serve for an illustration, showing how much truth the grandmothers have on their side, and how much the health cranks have. To begin with, I had been overworking. All sorts of appeals come to me. Hundreds of people write me letters, and I cannot bear to leave them unanswered. I accepted calls to speak, and invitations where I had to eat a lot of stuff of which my reason disapproves, so one morning I woke up with a slight sore throat. I fasted all day, and by evening felt all right. But there came another call, and I consented to take a long automobile ride on a cold and rainy night, and when I got back home after five or six hours, I was thoroughly chilled, and my cold came on during the night. This explanation will, I imagine, be satisfactory to all the grandmothers of the world. All the dear, good grandmothers know that an automobile ride on a cold, rainy night is enough to give any man his death. But listen, grandmothers, I have lain out watching for deer all night in the late fall, with only a thin blanket to cover me, and gotten up so stiff with cold that I could hardly move, yet I did not catch cold. When I was a youth, I have ridden a bicycle twenty miles to the beach in April, with snow on the ground, and plunged into the surf and swam, and then ridden home again. I have bathed in the sea when I had to run a quarter of a mile in a bathing suit along a frost-covered pier, and with an icy wind blowing through my bones, yet I never took cold from that, and never got anything but a feeling of exhilaration. So it must be that there is some reason why exposure causes colds at one time, and not at another. The explanation takes you over to the health cranks. They understand that your bloodstream must be clogged, your bodily tone reduced by bad air and lack of exercise, 
and more especially by overeating or by an improperly balanced diet. But then most of them go to extremes, and insist that the automobile ride and the chilled condition of my body had nothing to do with my cold. But I know otherwise. I have watched the thing happen so often. In times when I was run down, the slightest exposure would cause me a cold, literally, in a few minutes. I have got myself a sore throat going out to the woodpile on a winter day with nothing on my head. I have got a cold by sitting still with wet feet, or by sitting in a draft on a warm summer day when I had been perspiring a little. How to explain this I am not sure, but my guess is that you drive the blood away from the surface of the body at a time when it is weakened and exposed to infection, and you drive away the army of the white corpuscles and give the battlefield of your body to the germs. I know there are nature curists who argue that germs have nothing to do with disease, but they have never been able to convince me. Germs are too real, and too many, and too easy to watch. If you leave a piece of meat exposed to the air in warm temperature, the germs in the air will settle upon it and begin to feed upon it and to multiply. The meat, being dead, is powerless to protect itself. But your nose and throat are also meat, and just as good food for those germs. The only difference is that this meat is alive. There is a living bloodstream circulating through it, and several score billions of the body's own kind of germs, the blood corpuscles. If these blood corpuscles are sound and properly nourished, and are brought to the place of infection, they are able to destroy all the common germs. So it is that you do not have diseases, but instead have health. But your health always implies a struggle of your organism against other organisms, and it is the business of your reason to watch your body and give all the help you can in protecting it. Coughs and colds, sore throats and headaches are the first warnings that your defenses are being weakened. As a rule, these ailments are not serious in themselves, but they are signs of a wrong condition, and if you neglect this condition, Pretty soon you will find that you have to deal with something deadly. My cure for a cold is to take an enema and a laxative, eat nothing for 24 hours, and drink plenty of water. If you have a severe cold or sore throat, you will be wise to lie in bed for a day or two by an open window. You may also use sprays and gargles if you wish, but you will find them of little use because the germs are deep in your mucous membranes and cannot all be reached from the outside. In the old sad days of my ignorance, I would get a cold and go to the doctor and have my throat and nose pumped full of black and green and yellow and purple liquids, which did me absolutely no good whatever. The cold would stay on for two or three weeks, sometimes for eight or ten weeks, and I would be miserable, utterly desperate. I was dying by inches, and not one of the doctors could tell me why. The next most common ailment is a headache, and this means poisons in your bloodstream. It may be from improper diet, from alcohol or drugs, or bad air or nervous excitement. 
if it is none of these things then you should begin to look for some organic difficulty eye strain for example or perhaps defects in the spine the osteopaths and the chiropractors specialize on the spine and have made important discoveries their doctrine is in brief that the nervous force which directs the bloodstream is carried to the organs of the body by nerves which leave the spinal cord through openings between the vertebrae if any of these openings are pinched you have a diminished nerve supply which means ill health in that part of the body to which the nerve leads that such trouble can be corrected by straightening the bones of the spine seems perfectly reasonable but like most people with a new idea the discoverers proceed to carry it to absurd extremes i have before me an official chiropractic pamphlet which states that vertebral displacement is the physical and perpetuating cause of ninety five percent of all cases of disease the remaining five percent being due to subluxations of other skeletal segments and naturally people who believe this will devote nearly all their study to the bones and the nervous system but surely there are other parts of your body which are necessary besides bones and nerves and what if some of these parts happen to be malformed and effective what if your eyes do not focus properly and you are continually wearing out the optic nerve thus giving yourself headaches and neurasthenia what if you have an appendix that has been twisted and malformed from birth and is a center of infection so long as it remains in the body several years ago i had an experience with the appendix from which i learned something about one of the commonest human ailments constipation or sluggishness of the bowels this is a cause of innumerable chronic ailments grouped under the head of auto intoxication or the poisoning of the body by the absorption into the system of the products of fermentation and decay in the bowels the bowel should move freely two or three times every day and the movements should be soft i suffered from constipation for some twenty years and tried i think every remedy known to science and to crank them in the beginning the doctors gave me drugs which by irritating the intestinal walls caused them to pour out quantities of water and hurry the irritating substances down the intestinal tract that is all right for an emergency if you have swallowed a poison or food which is spoiled or if you have overeaten and are ill get your system cleaned out by any and every device but if you habitually swallow mild poisons which is what all laxatives are you weakened the intestinal tract and you have to take more and more of these poisons and you get less results we may set down as positive the statement that drugs are not a remedy for constipation next comes diet eat the rough and bulky foods save the nature curists and stimulate the intestinal walls to activity i tried that i listened to the extreme enthusiast and boiled whole wheat and ate it and consumed quantities of bran biscuit and of a japanese seaweed which dr kellogg prepares and of petroleum oil and even the skins of oranges which are most uncomfortable eating i assure you i would eat things like this until i got myself a case of diarrhea and so was cured of constipation for a time 
Strange as it may seem to you, there are even people who tell you to eat sand. I listened to them, and ate many quarts. And then there is exercise. McFadden taught me a whole series of exercises for developing the muscles of the abdominal walls and the back, which are greatly neglected by civilized man. The fundamental cause of constipation is a sluggish life, and to exercise our bodies is a duty. But to me, it was always an agony of boredom to lie on a bed and wiggle my abdomen for a quarter of an hour. The same thing applies to hot water treatments, which are effective, but a nuisance and a waste of time. I never could keep them up, except when I was in trouble. Three or four years ago I began to notice a continual irritating pain on my right side, which I quickly realized must lie in the appendix. I tried massage, and hot and cold water treatments, and my favorite remedy, a week's fast. The pain disappeared, but it returned, so finally I decided, to the dismay of my physical culture friends, to have the appendix out. For years I had been reading the statements of nature curists that the appendix is an important and vital part of the body, which pours an oil or something into the intestinal tract, and so helps to prevent constipation. Well, evidently my appendix wasn't doing its job, so I took it to a good surgeon. What I found was that it had been twisted and malformed from birth, so that it was a center of continuous infection. From the time that I had the operation, I have never had to think about the subject of constipation. This experience suggests to me how easy it is for people to make statements about health which have no relationship to facts. I do not recommend promiscuous surgery, and I perfectly well realize that if human beings would take proper care of their health, the great proportion of surgical operations would be unnecessary. I realize also that surgeons get paid by the job, and therefore have a money interest in operating, and it is perfectly futile to expect that none of them will ever be influenced by the profit motive. Nevertheless, it is true that sometimes surgical operations are necessary, and that by standing a little temporary inconvenience, you can save yourself a lifetime of discomfort. Take, for example, rupture. The human body has here a natural weakness from which there results a dangerous and uncomfortable affliction. Hundreds of thousands of men are going around all their lives wearing elaborate and expensive trusses, which are almost, if not entirely, useless, and trying advertised cures, which are entirely fakes. An operation takes an hour or two and two or three weeks in bed, and when our government drafted its young men into the army and found that fourteen in every thousand of them had rupture, it shipped them into hospitals wholesale and sewed them up. It happens that rupture affords one case where scar tissue is stronger than natural tissue, and there were practically no returns from the great number of army cases. Likewise, you find extreme statements repeated concerning the evils of vaccination. But if you will read Parkman's History of the Jesuits in North America, you will see the horrible conditions under which the Indians lived in the United States, noble savages, you understand, entirely uncontaminated by civilized white men, 
and whole populations regularly wiped out every few years by epidemics of smallpox. That these epidemics ceased was due to the discovery that by infecting the body with a mild form of the disease, it could be made to develop substances which render it immune to the deadly form. Here in California, we have a law which makes vaccination for school children optional, and so we may someday have another epidemic to test the theories of the anti-vaccinationists. I know, of course, the dreadful stories of people who have been given syphilis and other diseases by impure vaccines. I don't know whether such stories are true, but I do know that people who live in houses are sometimes killed by earthquakes and by lightning, yet we do not cease to live in houses because of this chance. It seems to me that the remedy for such vaccination evils is not to abolish vaccination, but to take more care in the manufacture of our vaccines. This danger is removed by using vaccines which are sterile and are made especially for each person. Germs are taken from the sick person and injected into an animal, the body of the animal develops with great rapidity the antibodies necessary to resistance to the germs, and as these antibodies are chemical products not affected by heat, we can take a serum from the animal, sterilize it, and then inject it into the system of the patient, thus increasing resistance to the disease. I admit that the best way to increase such resistance is to take care of your health. But sometimes we confront an emergency, and we must use emergency remedies. We have serums that really cure diphtheria and meningitis, and one that will prevent lockjaw. Anyone who has ever seen with his own eyes how the deadly membranes of diphtheria melt away as a result of an injection will be less dogmatic about the efforts of science to combat disease. Of course it is much pleasanter if you can destroy the source of the disease and keep it from getting into the human body. Every few years the southern part of our country used to be devastated by yellow fever epidemics. Every kind of weird and fantastic remedy was tried. People would go around with sponges full of vinegar hung under their noses. They would burn the clothing and bedding of those who died of the disease. They would wear gloves when they went shopping so as not to touch the money with their hands. But at last, medical experimenters traced the disease to a certain kind of mosquito. And now, if we drain the swamps and screen our houses and stay indoors after sundown, we do not get yellow fever, nor malaria either. In the same way, if we keep our bodies clean with soap and hot water, we do not get bitten by lice, and so do not die of typhus. If we take pains with our drains and water supply so that human excrement does not get into it, and if we destroy the filth-carrying housefly, we do not have epidemics of typhoid. But under conditions of battle, it is not possible for men to take these precautions, and so when they go into the army, they get a dose of typhoid serum. And this illustrates the difference between a true or hygienic remedy for a disease and a temporary or emergency remedy. If you say that you want to abolish war, 
and with it the need for typhoid vaccination, I cheerfully agree with you in this. All I am trying to do is to point out the folly of flying to extremes and rejecting any remedy which may help. What is the use of making the flat statement that vaccinations and serums never aid in the cure of disease, when any man can see with his own eyes the proof that they do? In the Spanish War, before typhoid vaccination, many times more soldiers died of this disease than died of bullets. But in the late war, there was practically no typhoid at all in the army camps. On the other hand, it was noticed that the men who had just come in, and who therefore had just been vaccinated, were considerably more susceptible to influenza which shows that vaccination does reduce the body condition for a time. The reader may say that in this case I am trying to sit on both sides of the fence. But the truth is that I am trying to keep an open mind and to consider all the facts and to avoid making rash statements. One of the statements you hear most frequently is that drugs can never remedy disease, or help in remedying it. Now, I abhor the drugging system of the orthodox medical men. I have talked with them, and heard them talk with one another, and I know that they will mix up half a dozen different substances in the vague hope that some one of them will have some effect. Even when they know definitely the effects they are producing, they are in many cases merely suppressing symptoms. On the other hand, however, it is a fact that medical science has had, for a generation or two, a specific which destroys the germs of one disease in the blood, without at the same time injuring the blood itself. That disease is malaria, and the drug is quinine. Of course, the way to avoid malaria is to drain the swamps. But you cannot do that all at once, nor can you always screen your house and stay in at sundown. When you first go into a country, you have no house to screen, and some emergency will certainly arise that exposes you to mosquito bites. So you will need quinine, and will be foolish not to use it, and know how to use it. Recent medical chemists discovered another remedy, this time for syphilis. It is called salvarsan, and while it does not always cure, it frequently does. In laboratories today, men are working over the problem of constructing a combination of molecules which will destroy the germ of sleeping sickness, without at the same time injuring the blood. If they find it, they will save hundreds of millions of lives. I do not see why we cannot recognize such a possibility, while at the same time making use of physical culture, of diet, and fasting. When the manuscript of this book was sent to the printer, there appeared in this place a paragraph telling of the work of Dr. Albert Abrams of San Francisco in the diagnosis and cure of disease by means of radioactive vibrations. As the book is going to press, the writer finds himself in San Francisco attending Dr. Abrams' clinics, and so he finds it possible to give a more extended account of some fascinating discoveries which seemed destined to revolutionize medical science. If I were to tell you all that I have seen with my own eyes in the last twelve days, I fear the reader would find his powers of credulity overstretched. 
so I shall content myself with trying to tell, in very sober and cautious language, the theory upon which Abrams is working, and the technique which he has evolved. Modern science has demonstrated that all matter is simply the activity of electrons, minute particles of electric force. This is a statement which no present-day physicist would dispute. The best evidence appears to indicate that a molecule of matter is a minute reproduction of the universe, a system of electrons whirling about a central nucleus. No eye has ever beheld an electron, for it is billions of times smaller than anything the microscope makes visible. But we can see the effects of electronic activity, and all modern books of physics give photographs of such. It is possible to determine the vibration rates of electrons, and to Dr. Abrams occurred the idea of determining the vibration rates of diseased tissue and disease germs. He discovered that it was invariably the same. Not merely does all cancerous material, for example, yield the same rate, but the blood of a person suffering from cancer yields that rate, at all times and under all circumstances. The vibration of cancer, of tuberculosis, of syphilis, each is different, uniform, and invariable. Likewise in the blood are other vibrations, uniform and dependable, which reveal the sex and age of the patient, the virulence of the disease, and the period of its duration. Yes, and even the location in the body, if there be some definite infected area. So here is a modern miracle, an infallible device for the diagnosis of disease. Dr. Abrams does not have to see the patient. All he has to have is a drop of blood on a piece of white blotting paper, and he sits in his laboratory and tells all about it, and somewhere several thousand miles away in Toronto or Boston or New Orleans, a surgeon operates and finds what he has been told is there. And that is only the beginning of the wonder, because, says Abrams, if you know the vibration rate of the electrons of germs, you can destroy those germs. It used to be a favorite trick of Caruso to tap a glass and determine its musical note, and then sing that note at the glass and shatter it to bits. It is well known that horses, trotting swiftly on a bridge, have sometimes coincided in their step with the vibration of the bridge, and thus have broken it down. On that same principle, this wizard of the electron introduces into your body radioactivity of a certain rate. And shall I say that he cures cancer and syphilis and tuberculosis of many years standing in a few treatments? I will not say that, because you would not and could not believe me. I will content myself with the telling what my wife and I have been watching twice a day for the past twelve days. The scene is a laboratory, with rows of raised seats at one side for the physicians who attend the clinic. There is a table, with the instruments of measurement, and Dr. Abrams sits beside it, and before him stands a young man stripped to the waist. The doctor is tapping upon the abdomen of this man, and listening to the sounds. You will find this the weirdest part of the whole procedure, for you will naturally assume that this young man is being examined 
and will be dazed when someone explains that the patient is in toronto or boston or new orleans and that this young man's body is the instrument which the doctor uses in the determining of the vibration rates of the patient's blood dr abrams tried numerous instruments but has been able to find nothing so sensitive to electronic activity as a human body he explains to his classes that the spinal cord is composed of millions of nerve fibers of different vibration rates hence a certain rate communicated to the body is automatically sorted out and appears on a certain precise spot of the body in the form of increased activity increased blood pressure in the cells and hence what all physicians know as a dull area which can be discovered by what is known as percussion a tapping with the finger to map out these areas is merely a matter of long and patient experiment and abrams has been studying the subject for some twenty years he is author of a textbook on what is known as the reactions of abrams so now he provides the world with a series of maps of the human body and he sits in front of his subject and his assistant places a specimen of blood in a little electrically connected box and sets the rheostat at some vibration number say fifty and dr abrams taps on a certain square inch of the abdomen of his subject and announces the dread word cancer then he places the electrode on another part of the subject's body and taps some more and announces that it is cancer of the small intestine left side some more tapping and he announces that its intensity is 12 ohms which is severe and pretty soon there is speeding a telegram to the physician who has sent this blood specimen telling him these facts and prescribing a certain vibration rate upon the oscilloclast the instrument of radioactivity which dr abrams has devised now you watch this thing for an hour or two and you say to yourself here is either the greatest magician in the history of mankind or else the greatest maniac you may have come prepared for some kind of fraud but you soon dismiss that for you realize that this man is desperately in earnest about what he is doing and so are all the physicians who watch him so you seek refuge in the thought that he must be deluding himself and them perhaps unconsciously but you talk with these men and discover that they have come from all over the country and always for one reason they had sent blood specimens to abrams and found that he had never made a mistake he told them more from a few drops of the patient's blood than they themselves had been able to find out from the whole patient and then into the clinic come the doctor's own patients i must have heard sixty or eighty of them tell their story and many of them have been lifted from the grave people ten years blind from syphilis who can see people operated on several times for cancer and given up for dying people with tumors on the brain or with one lung gone from tuberculosis it is literally a fact that when you have sat in abram's clinic for a week all disease loses its terrors this you see is really the mastery of life if we can measure and control the minute universe of the electron and the atom we have touched the ultimate source of our bodily life i might take chapters of this book 
to tell you of the strange experiments I have seen in this clinic, showing you, for instance, how these vibrations respond to thought, how by denying to himself the disease the patient can, for a few moments, cancel in his body the activity of the harmful germs, showing how the reactions differ in the different sexes and at different ages, and how they respond to different colors and different drugs. Abram's method has revealed the secret of such efficacy as drugs possess. Their work is done by their radioactivity, and not by their chemical properties. Also, the problem of vaccination has been solved, for Abrams has discovered a dread new disease, which is bovine syphilis, originally caused in cattle by human inoculation, and now reintroduced into the human being by vaccination, and becoming the agent which prepares the soil of the body for such disorders as tuberculosis and cancer and it appears that we can all be rendered immune to these diseases by a few electronic vibrations introduced into our bodies in childhood. So is opened up to our eyes a wonderful vision of a new race, purified and made fit for life. So here at last is science justified of her optimism, and our faith in human destiny forever vindicated. Take my advice, whoever you may be that are suffering, and find out about this new work and help to make it known to the world there are many romances of medical science some of them as fascinating as murder mysteries and big game hunting turn to mcmaster's history of the people of the united states and read his account of the terrible epidemic of yellow fever in philadelphia a hundred years ago i have already referred to the weird and incredible things that people did in their effort to ward off this plague sponges of vinegar under their noses and fever fires burning in the streets and then a mosquito would fly up and bite them and in a few hours they would be dead or what could be stranger than the tracing of the bubonic plague which has cost literally billions of human lives to a parasite in the blood of fleas which live on the bodies of rats or what could be more unexpected than the tracing of our rheumatic aches and twinges to the root canals of the teeth? One of the most common ailments which afflict poor humanity is rheumatism, a cause of endless suffering. It was supposed to be due to damp climate and exposure, and this is true to a certain extent, in the same way that colds are due to exposure. But the investigators realized that there must be some bodily condition rendering one susceptible, and they set to work to trace this condition down. The pains of rheumatism are caused by uric acid settling in the joints of the body. What causes the uric acid? Well, there is uric acid in red meat, so let us forbid rheumatic people to eat it. But this is overlooking the fact that the human body itself is a uric acid factory, and also the fact that uric acid taken into the stomach may not remain uric acid by the time it gets to the bloodstream. We know that you may eat a great deal of fruit acid without necessarily making acid blood. On the other hand, you can make acid blood by eating a lot of sugar. So you see, it isn't as simple as it sounds. Rheumatism has been traced to its lair, which is found to be the roots of the teeth 
here is a part of the body difficult to get at and as a consequence of bad diet and unwholesome ways of living infections will start there and pus sacs be formed and the poisons absorbed into the bloodstream and distributed throughout the body the first thought is to draw the infected teeth but that is a serious matter because you need your teeth to chew your food so the dentist has to go through a complicated process of opening up the tooth and cleaning out the root canals and treating the infected spots at the roots then he has to fill the tooth all the way down to the roots leaving no place for infection to gather this of course takes time and costs money and is one more illustration of the fact that there is one health law for the rich and another health law for the poor all the time that i write these chapters about health i feel guilty i know that the wholesome food i recommend costs money and i know that surgery and dentistry cost money yes even sunlight and fresh air and recreation even a fast because you have to rest while you take it and you have to have a roof over your head and warmth in winter time and somebody to wait upon you when you are weak i know that for a great many of the people who read what i write all these things are impossible of attainment i know that for the great majority of the common people the benefits of science do not exist science discovers how to prevent disease but the discoveries are not applied because the profit system controls the world and the profit system wants the labor of the poor regardless of what happens to their health if the people fall ill they are thrown upon the scrap heap and the profit system finds others to take their place take for example tuberculosis tuberculosis is a germ infection but it practically never gets hold upon a human body except when the body is reduced by undernourishment and lack of fresh air tuberculosis therefore is a disease of slums and jails it is definitely and indisputably a disease of poverty it could be wiped off the face of the earth in a single generation and the same is true of typhus and typhoid there's another whole host of ailments which could be wiped out by measures of public hygiene plus education this includes all the infant diseases and the deadly venereal diseases but the profit system stands in the way and so in these closing paragraphs of this book of the body i say that there is one disease which is the deadliest of all and the source of all others and that disease is poverty i know a certain physician to the rich who is an honest and conscientious man he said i loathe my work i am wasting my time i am called in by these fat overfed rich people in their leisure class hotels and what am i to say to them shall i say to them you are living an abnormal life and you can never be well until you cut out root and branch of all your habits of self-indulgence which are destroying you but no i can't say that not one time in a thousand i am expected to be polite and serious and to listen to them while they tell me their long tiresome story of their symptoms and i have to encourage them and give them some temporary device that will remove some of the symptoms of their trouble and what should one say to this honest physician should one tell him to go and be a physician to the poor would he be any happier there 
he could tell the poor the causes of their diseases and they would listen patiently they are trained to listen and to accept what they are told here is a girl living in an inside bedroom in a tenement and working ten or eleven hours a day in an unventilated factory and she is ill with tuberculosis the physician tells her that she needs plenty of fresh air and rest and a lot of eggs and milk in her diet he tells her that and he knows that she has as much chance of carrying out his orders as of flying to the moon or maybe he comes upon a typhoid epidemic and discovers as happened to a friend of mine in chicago that there is defective plumbing in some houses owned by the political leader of the district or maybe it is a case of venereal disease in a young man who is drafted into the army and turned loose amid the joys of paris maybe it is just a commonplace everyday story of a room full of school children twenty-two percent of them undernourished as is the case in new york city and the parents out of work part of the time and with no possibility in their lives of ever earning enough to feed the children properly when you confront these universal facts of our present social order you realize that the problem of disease is not merely a problem of the body but is a problem of the mind as well a problem of politics and religion and philosophy of the whole way of thinking of the so-called civilized world a book of health which did not point out these facts would be not a book of health but a book of sham but meantime while we are trying to change the world's ideas we have to live and we can do our work better if we keep as well as possible i have tried to point out the way it is as you can see a matter in part of the body and in part of the mind all the bodily regime here laid out has its basis in mental habits all wise and wholesome ways of life can at the age when our minds are plastic be made into second nature things which we do automatically without effort or temptation to do otherwise this is the real secret of true happiness in the conduct of our personal lives to acquire self-control to rule our desires and our passions not harshly and spasmodically but serenely as one drives a car which he thoroughly understands it is in vain that we preach freedom to men who have not this self-mastery as the poet tells us the sensual and the dark rebel in vain slaves of their own compulsion and of all the personal possessions which man can attain on this earth the most precious is the one of a sound mind controlling a sound body i close this book by quoting some verses written by sir henry wotton three hundred years ago which i have all my life considered one of the noblest pieces of poetry in our heritage the character of a happy life how happy is he born and taught that serveth not another's will whose armor is his honest thought and simple truth his utmost skill whose passions not his masters are whose soul is still prepared for death not tied unto the world with care of public fame or private breath who envies none that chance doth raise or vice who never understood how deepest wounds are given by praise nor rules of state 
but rules of good. Who hath his life from rumors freed, whose conscience is his strong retreat, whose state can neither flatterers feed, nor ruin make accusers great, who God doth late and early pray more of his grace than gifts to land, and entertains the harmless day with a well-chosen book or friend. This man is freed from servile bands of hope to rise or fear to fall, lord of himself, though not of lands, and having nothing, yet hath all. End of chapter 27 End of book two, The Book of the Body